Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and City Weekly, a local independent news source with event listings, entertainment picks, movie and restaurant reviews. Available weekly on newsstands or online at cityweekly.net. Welcome to Access Utah. Uh, a couple of items from yesterday. You recall we uh, did a spotlight on nonprofits and individuals doing good in our communities. We uh, got a lot of ideas how you can help. A couple of things. First, a, uh, a correction. Uh, Bridgeland Audubon Society is looking for people to help with the annual Christmas bird count. We announced that. Uh, we gave a wrong date on when the introductory program will be. Uh, you can come and learn how to participate in the annual uh, Christmas bird count uh, at a program at the Logan Library. That's on Saturday, December 8th at 10.30 a.m. in the Bridger Room of the Logan Library. You can help out with the Christmas bird count. And uh, this item um, also uh, from uh, our friend Hilary Shugart. Uh, she mentions uh, an event for the Cash Interagency Council, so a good time to tout them. The mission of the Cash Interagency Council is to unite service organizations in sharing ideas, upcoming events, and ongoing services, thus producing a spirit of unity and cooperation among participating organizations. They have an event coming up on Wednesday, November 28th. Eduardo Artis from uh, Utah State University will give a presentation on Cache Valley Diversity Demographics. That's on Wednesday, December or November 28th, uh, 11.30 a.m. at the Sizzler Restaurant in Logan. So keep those uh, spotlights coming in to upraxcess at gmail.com, and thank you so much. Uh, next up, interesting conversation with Nate Blakesley. His book is American Wolf. And I should mention the book is now out in paperback. Here's uh, my conversation from October of 2017. In his new book, American Wolf, A True Story of Survival and Obsession in the West, Nate Blakesley uh, tells the gripping story of one of the most famous of the Yellowstone Wolves, 06, a charismatic alpha female named for the year of her birth, Uncommonly powerful with gray fur and faint black ovals around each eye, 06 is a kind and merciful leader, a fiercely intelligent fighter, and a doting mother. She's beloved by wolf watchers and becomes something of a social media star with followers around the world. But as she raises her pups and protects her pack, 06 is challenged on all fronts by hunters who compete with wolves for the elk they both prize, by cattle ranchers who are losing livestock and have the air of politicians, and by other Yellowstone wolves who are vying for control of the park's stunningly beautiful Lamar Valley. And we bring in for the hour uh, writer Nate Blakesley. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. And uh, Nate Blakesley is a writer-at-large for Texas Monthly. His first book, Tulia, uh, won several awards, and he lives in uh, Austin, Texas, with his family. So you're out there in uh, Austin. How did you get connected up with this subject? Well, I used to go out to Yellowstone and uh, Jackson Hole area when I was in college. I was one of those kids that got summer tourist jobs out there, and I just absolutely loved it. And then uh, about 10 years ago, I took a wolf-watching class like a lot of people do in Yellowstone, and I got to see wolves for the first time uh, through a spotting scope, and I was just just amazed and really got hooked on them, and I met several of the people that would later become sort of characters in my book. Um, like Rick McIntyre and others. Uh, so what was it uh, that, that drew you in? What, what made you want to do wolf-watching, which is, by the way, a, a growing uh, industry? Yeah, wolf watching has uh, become really popular. Wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone in the mid-90s, and, and at the time, the idea was to restore the ecosystem. It wasn't meant to be, you know, another tourist attraction for, for Yellowstone, and, and park management assumed that the wolves would be too hard to spot anyway. But it turned out that a number of them stayed in this open, sort of relatively treeless valley called the Lamar Valley. It was excellent wolf habitat. It was full of elk, which is what they eat. Um, and they didn't seem to mind the fact that it had a road going through it uh, or cars on it. And so what happened was, partly through the efforts of Rick McIntyre, who is sort of the park's wolf guru, he's an interpretive ranger, which means he, he spends his days talking to visitors about what they're seeing. He started helping people spot wolves in the valley when there was just, you know, a couple dozen, and it just gradually grew from there into this phenomenon. The wolves spread throughout the park. There's over 100 now in 10 different packs. And even beyond the park, they spread throughout the northern Rockies. 
Um, and as they became more popular and, and Rick and his friends became more adept at finding them, watching wolves through a spotting scope in, in Yellowstone has just become one of the sort of things to do when you go to Yellowstone. What is it about the wolf? I guess, you, you know, you could watch grizzlies, you could watch, uh, you know, elk, uh, whatever, but it seems the wolf seems to yeah. hold a fascination. Why, why do you think? No, you're right. Uh, well, partly it was it was just so new. You know, there we really wasn't anywhere in the country that you could reliably go and spot wolves. Um, there are wolves in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, but they're very hard to spot because it's so heavily wooded. And, in fact, Yellowstone became the one place in the world where you could reliably spot wolves from a roadside. It became sort of this wolf-watching mecca. And as for why people were so fascinated with wolves, I mean, that difficult question to answer and it, it goes back you know our our own history as a species has been intertwined with wolves um for thousands of years you know the the wolf the gray wolf was once the most widely distributed land mammal on the planet it was found almost everywhere in the northern hemisphere it was found throughout the lower 48 united states um and today humans are the most widely distributed land mammal uh, and it's not a coincidence. Everywhere that human civilization has flourished, um, wolves have declined. And this has been the case since, you know, the very first shepherd uh, ran sheep on the, you know, on the very first pasture <laughs> after after humans left Africa. And so we've had sort of this, we've had sort of this conflicted relationship with wolves that goes back you know, well beyond, uh, you know, the days of our own ancestors. Um, wolves were so common in the United States that there was almost nowhere in the 19th century you could go to sleep without hearing a wolf howl. And that's the reason there are so many wolf metaphors in our language today, the wolf at the door, hungry like the wolf, leader of the pack. It's because wolves were everywhere. Wolves, People talked about wolves in those days uh, like they talk about the weather today. It was just a fact of life. One of the early quotes in your book, um, you, you quote Margaret Atwood from The Blind Assassin, all stories are about wolves, she says. Yeah, and, that, and you know, for many people, the wolf is just this icon of, of wilderness. You know, they can't imagine anything more wild than seeing a wolf. And when you're watching them in Yellowstone through your spotting scope, you, you do have this sensation that you are seeing this strange, wild phenomenon that you shouldn't be able to see today. It's almost like looking through your scope back into the 19th century. But at the same time, they're oddly familiar because the behavior you're observing through the scope is dog-like behavior. You're seeing them do these things that your dog does at home. So it's sort of this paradoxical feeling that you get. And the way we think about wolves as a society is paradoxical too. That You know, a wolf and a dog are essentially the same creature. But one of them has become our most beloved species, and one of them, historically at least, the most despised. And many people still feel that way about wolves today. Wolves are, remain controversial. I want to quote this from and Steve, who we quoted at the beginning of the program, commenting on our previous show, sent in a couple of articles about wolves. So this is from the New York Times, and I just want to quote this. This is about uh, wolves in Alaska. And very similar themes. Um, uh, um, reducing wolf populations when they stray from uh, protected areas. And then arguments over, uh, you know, is it too much, is it too little? And, and then the caribou population, which uh, which is the prey population, it, it, is it increasing because of reduction of wolf numbers or because decre- increasing because of uh, other factors? But this, this is a specifically about the wolves. This is quoting Kyle Jolie, lead wildlife biologist in the Yukon Charlie Rivers National Preserve. He says, some people just hate wolves. Um, pointing to hunters who use them as competition for uh, see them as competition for caribou. Other people on the other side think wolves are things that can do no harm. They're just angelic. Then he goes on to say, they're just another wild animal trying to make a living. They do it by killing ungulates and other things. It's it's. I mean, I can see what Dr. Jolie is saying, but it's <laughs> uh, it's very hard for for most of us on all sides of this to to just see wolves as just another animal. There's there's something about a wolf as, as a simple. No, you're right, and it's sometimes hard to remember that that wildlife management is a very political activity. You know, we we think of wilderness as sort of the opposite of civilization. There's 
there's the world that we have made for ourselves, and then there's the wild world that Mother Nature has created. But in a place like the American West, which has been so thoroughly exploited since you know the 19th century, wilderness is something that has to be created too. And not everybody agrees on what belongs, what should be put in, and what should be left out. And when the idea was floated to bring wolves back to Yellowstone, it was very controversial. The reason it needed to be done was all of the wolves had been hunted out of, of Yellowstone and trapped out of Yellowstone by fur trappers and by ranchers protecting stock, um, mostly by the late 19th century. And that was true across the lower 48, virtually the entire lower 48. And what, ha- what you saw in Yellowstone was this explosion in the elk population. And so much so that they were damaging the habitat. And it became immediately obvious that something had to be done. And so what happened was, without the wolves there to kill them, park rangers had to start culling the elk population. They killed thousands of them in a typical year. And the idea that bringing wolves back might be a more holistic solution to the problem was was floated as early as the 1940s, but it was really controversial, and it wasn't until the mid-'90s that the federal government got it done. And the reason it was controversial is that those same the descendants of those same ranchers that, that hunted out wolves in the northern Rockies are still there. They're still running sheep and cattle, some of it on public land. You know, they, they have these grazing leases that the National Forest issues. And elk hunting is big business in the northern Rockies. And so wolves eat a lot of elk. And people that make a living as a hunting guide or that run motels or restaurants that cater to hunters, they were worried that the, you know their livelihood would be jeopardized uh, if the wolves came back. What if you talk a little bit about the uh, that period when once the wolves were completely removed, about the 1920s, right, and until the reintroduction uh, of, of the wolf, and, and you learned this in your book, um, park rangers were involved uh, in in removing wolves. Um, yeah, that was one of the head slappers for sure. Yeah, I guess that was the understanding of the science at the time, right? Uh, it was thought that if uh, uh, you know, the, you had the top predator; it would decimate the prey population. It wasn't wasn't understood. I wonder if you talk a little bit about what what a top predator like a wolf does, how how it balances out the ecosystem. Yeah, well, as you say, at, at that time in the 1920s, wildlife biology was kind of still in its infancy as a science, and they and they did legitimately think that if left to their own devices, the wolves would kill all of the prey in Yellowstone, and that may sound foolish to us today, but they didn't understand that that wolves and elk had coexisted in Yellowstone for thousands of years, that they had, in in fact, evolved in tandem with each other. And that's why an elk can run exactly as fast as a a wolf and and no faster. And in fact, wolves were the apex predator almost anywhere they were found in the northern hemisphere. And all of these prey animals that you see today, all of the attributes we admire about them they all came in response to uh, in response to wolf predation. The nimbleness of the deer, the way a bighorn can go straight up the side of a mountain, the way a moose <laughs> is so enormous that predators hesitate to attack it. All of those traits were selected for as a result of hundreds or thousands of years of predation by wolves. So wolves literally sculpted uh, the landscape around us. And when they were gone, hunted out, as you say, in Yellowstone, ironically by, by park rangers, we saw this disastrous cascade of negative effects on the habitat. Conversely, when they were brought back, exactly what the biologists predicted would happen has happened. It's been 20 years now, and we're able to assess what the wolf's impact on the ecosystem has been, and it's been remarkably positive. Biologists call it a trophic cascade, and by that they mean you introduce one, uh, you reintroduce the apex predator, and you see this cascade of effects all the way down the food chain. And here's just a just a rough outline of how it works. When there were no wolves in the park, the elk would congregate sort of at their leisure in valleys. They started behaving basically like domestic cattle. They're enormous creatures, elk are. They are like cattle with long legs. They started eating willow along the stream sides started degrading the stream sides, which negatively affected impact to the, the, uh, the habitat for trout. The willow was beaver, was beaver forage, so there was less food for beavers. But when you brought them back, you saw the stream sides rehabilitated, you saw the beavers come back, you saw the coyote population in the park just plummeted. They had become the top canine in the absence of wolves when wolves came back 
one of the first things that happened was they killed half of the coyotes in the northern range. And so you saw a rebound in the rodent population. And that in turn meant more food for weasels and for raptors, and you saw a rebound there. And maybe the most fascinating unexpected thing was wolf carcasses, elk that they brought down, provided this important new source of nutrition uh, for bears, for grizzlies and, and black bears. And that was something that the biologists hadn't anticipated. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about the clash of cultures, clash of values. That's at the heart of this uh, story. Uh, have you tell me about 06, fascinating uh, uh, female uh, wolf, uh, maybe the most famous of the Yellowstone uh, wolves, and that's uh, that's she's the central figure in your book, um, and and some other stories. Uh, Steve McIntyre, and what have you tell me about uh, Stephen Turnbull, uh, a hunter. Uh, that's a pseudonym for for reasons we'll get into, uh, but he uh, he gave you access uh, as as well. More in this fascinating story. The book is American Wolf: A True Story of Survival and Obsession in the West. The author is Nate Blakesley. More follows this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Herald Journal, Cache Valley's community newspaper, helping to create an informed citizenry for over 100 years. News and subscription information at hjnews.com. Located at 1068 West, 1305 South in Logan. You're listening to Science by the Slice. Many Utahns have heard of Lake Bonneville, but not as many know about the unique imprint it left on northern Utah and southern Idaho. The ancient Pleistocene Lake, of which the Great Salt Lake is a remnant, covered nearly 32,000 square miles at its peak. In the new online video, Geological Highlights of Cache Valley, USU geologists describe the region's geology, including bathtub rings left by the huge body of water. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2017. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Nate Blakesley. His fascinating new book is American Wolf, A True Story of Survival and Obsession in the West. And uh, this is the story of the Yellowstone Wolves, uh, told uh, mostly through uh, 06, celebrated Yellowstone Wolf, the people who loved or feared her. So, Nate Blakesley, you you had an ambitious goal with this book. You wanted to tell this story uh, essentially through the eyes of uh, the heart of uh, of one of the wolves. H- how were you able to do that? Well, uh, you know, once wolf watching became this really popular phenomenon uh, in the park, you, you had this other phenomenon that developed, which was uh, the celebrity wolf, the wolf whose life had been so carefully watched and documented that she became uh, like a personality, like an attraction in the park, like you know, Old Faithful or the Tower Falls, something to come see when you were there. Um, and this happened with 06, and you know, she wasn't the first wolf to become famous in the park, but she she did sort of rise to fame at a time when Facebook was really exploding and other social media, and so her, her image and her story was sort of more widely distributed uh, than others. She was certainly the most famous animal in the park. She arguably was the most famous wild animal in the world. Um, but what made it possible to tell her story the way I do in the book was not the casual visitors that came and watched her, but was this small group of hardcore, just diehard wolf lovers who came to the park every day and tracked wolves every day and watched them through their scope for hours. And in particular, I, I met a woman named Lori Lyman. She's a retired school teacher from San Diego. And she gave me this treasure trove of notes, three years' worth of notes that she had taken from her own personal observations and those of her friends of 06 uh, and her pack, which is known as the Lamar Canyon pack. And I read through it, and it was like reading the diary of a wolf pack. It was just amazing. Everything that you might imagine was in there was in there. Territorial battles with rival packs, defending the den from grizzlies, beautiful tender scenes of of raising pups, which is done collectively by the whole pack. Um, And when I was done with it, I realized, you know, what you could do with this material is you could write a nonfiction book 
that reads like a novel in which the main characters are wolves. Um, you know, I told friends it would be like a Jack London story, except all of it would be true. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating, and then, you know, it does come off like that. So it's a novel featuring, uh, you know, six and her and her friends and enemies. Uh, tell me a bit more about O Six. She's uh, the, the fourth generation from the reintroduction, right? Yeah, she is. Her grandmother was a really celebrated wolf. She was uh, the alpha female of the Druid Peak Pack, which is the the pack that controlled the Lamar Valley for the first decade. The Lamar Valley is this, the prime wolf watching area in Yellowstone. The Lamar, the uh, Druids controlled that valley for the first decade. They became the face of the reintroduction program. They became the first famous wolves, the most famous wolves in the world. Three different documentaries were made about them. And so that was her grandmother. And, you know, just in terms of uh, her lineage, you know, that would be like being a descendant, uh, you know, of the Kennedys or something in, in, in our terms. Um, there is a man who works in the park, interpretive ranger named Rick McIntyre. He has followed the wolf reintroduction program from the very beginning. He spends his day telling stories to visitors on the side of the road. Any wolf you spot, almost any wolf you spot, he can tell you that wolf's lineage. He can tell you a story about that wolf. He can tell you, you know, about that wolf's personality. He's an amazing character. And when I went back and wanted to develop in more detail stories about sort of the highlights of O6's life, he was willing to talk to me and share some of his own notes, which he takes on a daily basis and has done so um, religiously for 15 years. He didn't miss a single day in the park for 15 years, and he has literally millions of words worth of notes on the pack. I wonder if we could uh, maybe, you know, in brief, can't recount the whole book. Obviously, you have to read it. American Wolf by Nate Blakesley. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, when we first meet uh, 06, she's, um, she's not an alpha, but uh, everyone who watches her thinks by personality well, she's got to become an alpha, right? And and uh, and and so you write about the dangers of being a a lone wolf, and then there's suspension built. Okay, will she become an alpha female? Uh, what, first of all, what are those those dangers? It's you know, it's, wolves go in packs, but once you're a yearling or so, right, you you need to go out and and uh, and form your own pack. Yeah, every pack is basically a family. It has a, a breeding pair, the alpha pair. Um, in order for a young wolf to breed herself and establish her own territory, she has to leave her natal pack. And that is very dangerous because every single part of Yellowstone is controlled by one pack or another, and they patrol their territory relentlessly, and they don't allow any trespassing. You know, the most common cause for death of a wolf in Yellowstone is conflict with other packs. So as soon as you leave your own territory and strike out into the world, you're at risk of dying, and most do, or return back to their natal pack and, and rejoin the pack where they were born. So when she first came onto the watcher's radar screen, she was a lone wolf. She was searching for her own territory and her own her own mate. And they were able, the watchers were able to observe this amazing story in which she attempted to steal away this pair of young male wolves that had tentatively joined the Druids. The Druids by this time were in decline. And I won't give away the whole story, but it culminates in 06 essentially having to outwit and then later outfight the alpha female uh, of the Druid pack. And all of this is, is seen in real time through spotting scopes. These scopes are just amazing. You know, you can watch, you go up to a group of people in Yellowstone and they're standing behind these scopes and you look at the mountain they're looking at and it, there's nothing. Even with your binoculars, you can't see anything. But if you know how to use these scopes, and once you get them zeroed in, you can see everything. You can see the expression on the wolves' faces. And so all this amazing behavior was witnessed through the scope, written down by Laurie or Rick, disseminated on Facebook. And this is how O6's story, you know, sort of propagated and how she became more and more famous. But the book also tells, it has human characters in it, too. And yeah. It also tells the story of, of this political fight that's going on over how wolves ought to be managed. And is coming to a head at the same time that O6's rise to power is occurring um, and culminates in the, the first legal wolf hunts in the areas around the park. And, and the book documents how that policy change affected the life of, of O6's back. And I want to definitely want to get back into that uh, first couple more questions about O6 and then, and, and, uh, you know, surrounding wolves. 
Um, yeah, I understand wolves can run as fast as 35 miles per hour, have been known to cover 40 miles uh, in a day. That is a factor that causes problems for the wolves, right? They don't know what the boundaries of the park are, and uh, you know they, they go in and out. The greater Yellowstone ecosystem includes park, protected lands, and unprotected lands. Yes, yes. The, the national park itself is just sort of... Um it's you know it's the gem of the national park system, but it's it's in the middle of a much larger wilderness expanse that is known as Greater Yellowstone, and which is the world's largest remaining essentially intact temperate ecosystem in the world. And the idea for reintroduction of wolves, they were brought back into Yellowstone in central Idaho, but the idea was that they would spread all throughout the northern Rockies, um, and they have. But as you say, the degree of protection that the wolf enjoys varies according to what sort of land he or she is on. And as soon as they leave the park, and all Yellowstone packs will leave the park at one time or another. Yellowstone is huge, but wolves, as you say, routinely travel 20 miles a day in search for elk. There is obviously no fence around the park. They don't know when they're leaving protected land. Um, All of the areas around the park are very popular with elk hunters. The reason for that is Yellowstone has this celebrated elk herd that is protected all year round, and then in the winter comes down out of Yellowstone because it's so high and snowy, comes down into those unprotected areas around the park and, and provides this amazing hunting opportunity every fall. And, of course, the wolves do that too, following the elk, and that makes them potentially uh, prey for hunters. By the way, there's a, a pulse-pounding story early in the book uh, where the, a pack, including 06, is, uh, has separated out an elk, and, uh, and, and you know it's high drama. The elk is heading for water. You you write that uh, that's an advantage if if the elk can get to, get to water. Um, wolves who are swimming uh, can't uh, aren't effective uh, killers. Uh, but yeah, the climax is the river is frozen. Oh no, <laughs> you know that's the, the these, these yeah. dramas uh, uh, play out. Uh, I guess uh, you know every day. Yes, and and until the reintroduction in Yellowstone. It was seldom seen. It was very rare to see wolves taking down prey in the wild. Um, but since they've been brought back to Yellowstone, you know, they see it every day. It's something that, you know, a lot of, of park employees live in the park. It's something they can see out their kitchen window, an elk being brought down by a wolf. Um, and as you say, you're watching this timeless drama that has been going on since the last ice age, and the elk usually do run for the river, and if they make it, they'll stand there in that hip deep water. And the wolves, they can swim, but uh, they have no leverage when they're in the water, and so typically they'll lay there on the bank and just wait. They'll try to wait out the elk, um, and sometimes it works, and, and sometimes it doesn't. Now, this, uh, of course, this whole debate is, is deeply polarizing, as, as we know. I, I remember the reintroduction and uh, the debates, uh, uh, you know, ahead of that, and the debates have been going on ever since. Um, and um, it's, it, it's, it is a clash, as you write in the book, it's a clash of values, it's a clash of culture. These are deep divisions. Yeah, it is. In one way, you could look at it as sort of old Wyoming and new Wyoming, or old Montana and new Montana. Traditionally, people have made a living in that part of the world through these extractive industries, timber, coal, or gold, or hunting for elk. Um, and But you've got these newcomers coming who are more interested uh, in leaving a forest standing because it provides good wildlife habitat, or who are more interested in watching wildlife than shooting wildlife. Ecotourism has become this huge thing. Um, it is still a really sparsely populated part of the, of the country, but... As you have more and more new people coming in, it has gradually sort of changed uh, the conservation ethic that you see there, and there is this clash going on. And then more broadly, there's this clash that we often see in Western politics between sort of local interests and the federal government. What's unique about the West, what we all love about the West, is that so much of it is, is public land, federal land, national parks, national forests. Huge percentages of, of Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming are, are this way. Um, and that may, that means that you and I and, and people who don't live there have a say in how that land is managed. And that causes resentment locally because you've got, say, the governor of Idaho, whose constituents have always used that land in the way that they see fit. And especially beginning in the 1970s when the environmental movement became more powerful, the 
federal government started to change the rules on how that land should be used. And that has caused this ongoing battle over. And, and the battle over wolves is sort of part and parcel of that larger battle over how federal land should be used and who should get to make those decisions. And we see this uh, being played out, of course, with the National Monuments debate and, uh, you know, Bears Ears here in in, in Utah. So who, who makes the decisions and uh, and what should the values uh, be? Um, I wonder if we could t- talk a little bit about some of the human characters in your book. I'm fascinated with the person that you call Stephen Turnbull. That's a pseudonym, right? He didn't want his uh, his real name known in in, in this context. Yeah, I wanted to have uh, the perspective of a wolf hunter in there, just because, you know, you you want to know sort of how everybody in this debate sees the world, and the only way to do that is to is to really have get inside the head of a character um, who is not anti-wolf, but who doesn't see wolves the same way as someone like Rick McIntyre or Laurie Lyman does. Um, and Stephen Turnbull is someone who was. Oh, I described him as kind of like a ski bum, you know, he's, except he's got a rifle instead of a snowboard. He, he has built his life around his favorite pastime. He lives there in Crandall, which is just east of the park. Um, he hunts, you know, as much of the year around as he possibly can, elk in the fall and black bear in the spring and mule deer. Um, and he's like a lot of people in that part of the world. Hunting is sort of what they live for. Um in most of the country, you know, hunting is kind of is dying uh, as a as a pastime and certainly as a subsistence model. But in the Northern Rockies, it's still very popular. Everybody hunts, women hunt, young people hunt, wildlife biologists, the people that run the wolf reintroduction program hunt elk. So it's um, and I wanted to, I, it was important to me to have that perspective in the book so that people everywhere, including people in parts of the country where hunting is uh, essentially a dead pastime could understand and could get inside the head of, of someone for whom it isn't. This is very much uh, tied up with family, as as, uh, it, as it often is, right? It's family tradition. In fact, he received a, what, a World War One era rifle from his, what was it, his grandfather? Yeah, his grandfather had this Craig hunting, well, it wasn't a hunting rifle, it was made for the Army in World War I. Uh, and it was, a, it was a family heirloom which is not uncommon, you know, in the, in the West or in the South. And it was handed down, you know, to his parents' wedding and then to as a wedding present um, for his generation. And, and now his, uh, his sister has it. And he himself became a bow hunter, which is sort of something that true aficionados kind of gravitate towards. They, they don't want to shoot an animal from a thousand yards away. They want to show that they can stalk an animal and that they understand an animal. He's a big fair chase hunter, which is the idea that you should eschew any sort of unfair advantage that you can get over wildlife. Um, but of course, if you're hunting a wolf that lives in Yellowstone, this uh, question of whether or not it is fair chase is a legitimate one because Yellowstone wolves, are, you know, they're not tame, they're wild animals, but they do become somewhat tolerant of people because they see cars and they see people on the side of the road all day long, and they have learned not to fear them because while they're in the park, they're completely protected. So when they wander out of the park, some people argue that it's not it's not fair chase to shoot them because they don't run from hunters. They're totally naive about hunters. Um, and in turn, it has this idea has been floated that there ought to be a buffer zone around the park in which wolves uh, can't be shot. Uh, Turnbull, I, I believe from the book, uh, he believes, he doesn't believe in eradication of wolves, but he does believe wolf numbers should be reduced, right? He does believe in wolf hunts, I believe, right? Yes, he very much, like a lot of people that live in Crandall, which is this area just east of the park, or in other areas adjacent to the park, he very much resents the fact that the Yellowstone elk herd is so much smaller than it used to be. Um, the herd, as we discussed at the top of the program, just ballooned when wolves were eliminated. Um, and then it was culled by park rangers to keep it back at levels that were manageable. But that practice was stopped uh, in the 1960s because of pressure from elected officials around the park who were responding to the desires of hunters and hunting guides. They wanted that huge surplus of elk in Yellowstone because it created all these great hunting opportunities in the area around the park. 
and they didn't really care that the habitat was being degraded in Yellowstone. That wasn't a priority. And so to Turnbull and his dad, and to some degree to his granddad, the number of elk they saw east of the park was normal. It wasn't this inflated number of, of, of elk. And so when the wolves were brought back with a stated policy goal of reducing that elk herd, and when that happened, they were extremely resentful. And there are a lot fewer elk uh, in where he lives in Crandall. And in fact, most of the hunting guide services that were there have now gone out of business. And uh, I suppose because of uh, Turnbull and many others like him, um, it's become good politics, right, to, uh, to, to um, I guess, oppose the wolves, at least in the, the numbers with the, the way they are now. And uh, this is tied up in this larger argument over should we manage locally or should we manage, should the federal government come in? It's become good politics on the state level to oppose federal management. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, to be clear, Hunting opportunities have dried up in some limited areas near Yellowstone, but as a whole in the northern Rockies, the elk hunt, uh, the uh, hunting business is great. In fact, in Wyoming, they've had some of the biggest harvests that they've had in history in recent years, and that's true in Montana and Idaho, too. Um, and it's also ranching. You know, some ranchers have lost stock, cattle and sheep near the core reintroduction areas, um, those ranchers are compensated by the state for, for animals that are lost. But as a whole, the ranching business in the northern, in the northern Rockies hasn't been damaged. I mean, for perspective, uh, something like 200 sheep and cattle were lost in Wyoming last year to wolves. Tens of thousands are lost to, to bad weather and to disease. Um, but as you say, it has become good politics to be against wolves. It's become this position you stake out as a kind of a litmus test to show what kind of politician you are and what you stand for, like like gun control, an issue like that. Um, and so, as you as a politician, like for example, the governor of Idaho, Butch Otter, he ran on a platform of promising to reduce Idaho's wolf numbers just as much as he legally could, as just as soon as they came off the endangered species list, uh, and he did his best to do that. And if you learn that you can score points that way, then the sort of the politics and the rhetoric become divorced from the reality of uh, what the real impact of wolves really is. Uh, so uh, it, it tends to be, at least on the local level, um, forces on one side. One side of this divide uh, tends to have the ear of the politicians and therefore some, some power that way. Um, wolf, I guess wolf lovers, you could, <laughs> wolf watchers, wolf uh, advocates of wolves, uh, in greater numbers, it seems to be one of the one of the big tools, one of the big uh, weapons is social media, and uh, the, you know wolf watchers yes. and describing wolves and and uh, videos, and it seems to be that's the uh, that's the that's the weapon. Yeah, wolves wolves have a powerful constituency too. The reintroduction program was hugely popular um, around the country. And it's now looked at as well, one of the most successful wildlife management interventions in the, you know, the 20th century. Um, and people around the country love wolves. They're fascinated by wolves. They'll go to Yellowstone for the express purpose of seeing wolves. There's an ecotourism business built around wolves, motels, and guide services. Um, and as you say, uh, the, the wolf, this sort of subculture of people who really love wolves, are extremely active on social media. There are Facebook pages, there are websites, um, you know, it's Instagram, uh, it's everywhere. It is possible to <laughs> sort of build your life. Just as Turnbull builds his life around hunting elk, it is possible to, to build your life around, you know, and have all your friends involved in this one pastime of uh, watching wolves. Another indication of the interest, there's a lot of buzz around your book, and uh, I'm, I, I'm reading here that... Uh, uh, a film company uh, has picked up rights. Uh, yes, Leonardo DiCaprio's production company has acquired uh, an option on the book, and they're working on a script, and they've uh, identified a director. I don't, I don't think uh, there's been a green light, as they say, but um, but I think uh, I think they they like the idea that it was sort of this issue that. Uh, was kind of an evergreen in terms of Western politics and that people they knew would still be talking about this issue whenever the movie did come out, if it ever did. And that it has, you know, it has uh, sort of this inherent drama. It has this 
this uh, wonderful story, this kind of Jack London quality to it. Um, and I think that's what appealed to them. Let's take another break. <clears throat> when we come back, I want to hear uh, about uh, more of the characters, that, especially uh, um, um, Rick McIntyre, who's uh, he's an icon himself, uh, uh, quite the figure in the, in the park. American Wolf, a true story of survival and obsession in the West is the book. Nate Blakesley is the author, and we'll have more following this break. Thanksgiving's turkey is the fall's last fall. The pilgrim's late celebration of corn and apple and cranberry turns the last key in the door of autumn. This Thanksgiving, we remember America's poet laureate Donald Hall, plus a visit from a great composer full of gratitude, John Rutter. I'm John Burge with Music and Stories for Thanksgiving. It's Giving Thanks from APM. Join us Thanksgiving Day, 9 a.m. here on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank our partner, the USU Center for Women and Gender, for sponsoring the UPR original series, Utah Women 2020. Find out how you can become a sponsor by calling 435-797-3215. Happy 65th anniversary, UPR. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2017. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Nate Blakesley, his latest book, fascinating book, American Wolf, A True Story of Survival and Obsession in the West. Uh, so, Nate Blakesley, I want to have you talk a little bit more uh, about uh, one of the, the figures uh, in the book, and uh, that is uh, naturalist uh, Rick McIntyre. Uh, he's he's one of, you could call him you could put him under the uh, subtitle here obsessions true story of survival and obsession in the West uh, there are some people who uh, uh, who I guess could could fit uh, that uh, that title and just have a, 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 a by personality and interest uh, are suited to being out there every single day. Yeah, Rick is. Uh he is an unusual character. I can honestly say I've never met anyone like him. He's he's a true eccentric. Uh, he's in his mid-60s. He's unmarried. He's spent his entire career as a, an interpretive ranger for the Park Service. Um, originally, he was a seasonal ranger. He would spend uh, his uh, summers up in Denali National Park and his winters in Big Bend. Um, in Denali, he started to watch wolves. He became obsessed with them. Um, when reintroduction happened in Yellowstone, he became the park's first interpretive ranger in charge of, uh, of wolves. Um, he is so obsessed with them that he, whether he is on the clock or off the clock, every single day before dawn, he comes to the park and he spends the entire day watching wolves. And he takes notes on absolutely everything that he has seen. Um, in 2010, he had accumulated 5 million words, 10,000 single-spaced pages. Um, by now, he has probably nearly twice that. Um, his plan is to write uh, a book or a series of books about Yellowstone wolves. He is uh, a very shy man. He's an introvert, but someone who sort of ironically has found himself um, talking to strangers all day about wolves. And what he does is, rather than sort of tell people, I mean, he, he'll give you facts about wolves and eat and how fast and far they can run but what he really loves to do is, is tell stories and as I mentioned earlier he has got after you know 20 years of being in the Lamar Valley every day it, uh, you know it's like his neighborhood he has a story about every landmark in the valley he has a story about every wolf that he can see he can recite chapter and verse of, of their lineage he can tell you you know which ones became alphas and where they lived and how long they lived um, and he, he, he's a, he's a storyteller that never tires of, of listening to stories. And if you go visit him in his cabin, you'll see, you'll see evidence of this. He's got Godzilla posters. He's got posters from Charles Bronson movies. He's a huge fan of professional wrestling just because he loves the characters involved and the stories involved. He is a student of wolf lore. He has collected all of these old stories from turn of the century or 1910s, 1920s about outlaw wolves, which was this really popular genre uh, at the time, documenting sort of the exploits of the last few wolves in the West that were remaining after this purge on behalf of ranchers. Um, he wants to be the next Ernest Thompson Seton. Seton was this 
man who was a naturalist and wrote this short story that just captured the nation's imagination. It was called Lobo, the King of Kurumpah. It was in Collier's in the 1890s. Everybody read it, and it's widely attributed with sort of changing the way people think about wolves from just sort of being this voracious, mindless killing machines to being animals somewhat more akin to dogs that uh, sort of deserving of our, our sympathy and our affection. That's a key, isn't it? That's a, there, There's an ongoing battle, which will probably continue ongoing, over um, over wh- who wolves are, what the, what they are, and what the uh, what they symbolize. Yeah, and it, you know, it's funny. I wrote an op-ed recently about this this strange paradox of dogs and wolves. We love dogs, but many of us hate wolves. And the same hunter who's got the wolf in his sights has probably got a dog at home that he really loves. Um, and I, I tried to sort of parse what is the difference in our mind. And it, it seems to be the difference is that dogs, it's that in- intimacy. You know you know the dog's story because you've, you've been around the dog since the dog was a puppy and you, you sort of know all the ins and outs and ups and downs and trials and tribulations of that animal's life. But I, I think what Wolf Watching in Yellowstone and what Rick McIntyre's career has shown is that is that wolves have stories too. You know, they they too live these amazing lives that you know, much more adventurous obviously than a domestic dog, filled with uh sort of triumphs and hardships and amazing moments of empathy at the den and um you know, these these amazing battles over territory and the you know, the idea that a wolf could triumph over that sort of adversity and live that sort of amazing life and then just be cut short because somebody wants a trophy or somebody wants a hide to put on their wall um, is very difficult for for some people to swallow. Um, I, w- I want to talk a little bit more about uh, wolf watching. It seems, as we're talking about, you know, dogs, maybe the intimacy and the wolves, uh, not so much, and that maybe why a different feeling toward wolves. Wolf watching, I've never done it, but it would seem to be you're trying to build a little bit of intimacy, trying to get into an animal's life, uh, you know, albeit from a distance. Yeah, you you know, and when you're watching them in the scope, if you're lucky, you know, you can... 06's first den, for example, was perfectly visible from the road. It was about a mile and a half away, but if you put your scope in the right spot, you could watch her bring the pups out every day and, and feed them and play with them and... You could watch the other adults in the pack come back from hunting expeditions and feed them. You know, the wolves regurgitate like birds uh, food for the pups, and you could actually see this happen in, in real time. It was, a, it was an astounding thing. Of course, you can't you can't hear anything. It's like watching a silent movie. But one of the wonderful things about wolf watching is hearing them howl. Wolves will howl for any number of reasons. Um, and I, Rick, I think, found that those howls were sort of what really kind of made it real for for visitors to the park when they heard something like that. He would tell everybody to be quiet and let's listen and let's listen and see if another pack answers the howl. And then he would sort of try to identify what the purpose of that particular howl was. And I was out there with him um, when visitors saw wolves for the first time, and it really, it really is a heartwarming thing. I mean, they, you know, they're they're at the park. They're excited to see a wild animal. They don't really believe that they're going to see a wolf. And then Rick says, you know, come look through my scope. And they do. And there's just this delighted, you know, expression in any number of languages because people will come to Yellowstone from all over the world. And it, it really is it, it really is a wonderful thing to see. We have a uh, caller. We'll fit the caller in here at the end. Uh, Keith in St. George has called us. Uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment, Keith. Hi. I just want to say I firm believer that wolves are a necessity to return to the environment, but uh, I was at a dinner down here last week with some uh, cattle ranchers, and their attitude was uh, shoot them and bury them deep, and uh, I learned a lot more by listening than I would have talking, but uh, I'm in love with dogs, I'm in love with the idea of wolves and how they're benefiting the society, so keep up the good work. 
Thanks, Keith. I appreciate uh, that comment. That uh, Keith's uh, comment illustrates that divide, which is ongoing. Uh, just at the end here, I wonder, having uh, done the book, talked to uh, many different voices, uh, just about a minute left, do you, do you think there will be a consensus that will develop, or will we have this polarization continue? Well, it's hard to say. The fight is still ongoing. You can hunt wolves, as I say, in all three states around the northern Rockies, but wolf advocates haven't given up on suing to overturn those decisions. And the, the next fight probably will be over whether or not hunting should be allowed in the upper Midwest. It's currently against the law to hunt wolves there, but many people would like to. And then more broadly, as wolves expand beyond those three northern Rocky states, there's going to be a fight over whether or not they should remain federally protected in the rest of the lower 48. So I, I don't think we've seen the end of it. Um, but I hope that sort of through education we can have at least a little bit higher level of debate. Well, the uh, book's fascinating, well worth the read. American Wolf, A True Story of Survival and Obsession in the West. And the author, Nate Blakesley, has uh, joined us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. My mother-in-law and I had a long-running discussion about whether or not it's appropriate to wash raw meat before cooking it. She thought, yes, you should wash it for the same reason that you wash apples in cereal bowls, to get the crud off. She dutifully rinsed her chicken carcasses and pork chops at the tap and patted them dry with some paper towels before putting them in a pan to cook. It couldn't hurt to wash away some of the contaminants before the meat hits the pan, she reasoned. I said no. I've been raised just to throw the steak into a pan with a bit of hot oil. That the heat itself would kill anything that needed killing. And just recently, I found out that the food safety experts actually agree with me. They don't recommend washing meat before cooking. For concern over the possible spread of germs in your kitchen, onto your countertops, to other foods, and onto you from the splatter of running water. Water can splash bacteria up to three feet surrounding your sink, which can lead to cross-contamination, according to the USDA. Research has shown that it's best to move meat and poultry straight from package to pan, since the heat required for cooking will kill any bacteria that may be present. But what about when your raw chicken thaws in the package, with that stuff that you probably assume is blood, but is actually water and meat proteins that have seeped from the meat? That stuff is actually fine. It's basically liquid chicken. It doesn't need to be cleaned off. Plus, there are epicurial reasons not to rinse meat. Excess moisture on the meat surface inhibits the Maillard reaction, the chemical process that creates that coveted golden sear on your T-bone. The Maillard reaction begins at approximately 230 degrees. Water, which converts to vapor way down at 212 degrees, simply won't get hot enough to let the reaction occur until all the water is cooked off. By that time, your steak could already be well done. I know, I know, Julia Child and countless other recipes tell you otherwise. But they, along with my mother-in-law, are wrong. It is, unfortunately, too late to bring this up to my sweet mother-in-law since she passed away years ago. But if she were around today, I would humbly produce the science and maybe also tell her how much I miss her pork chops. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.